Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. The 11th of November is a date that carries great resonance in many parts of the world. In the US, it's Veterans Day. In Canada, it's Remembrance Day. And in many West European states, it's a solemn day of commemoration, and all for the same reason. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the First World War came to an official end. After more than four years of fighting and millions of men dead on all sides, hostilities ceased. However, that was just the beginning of the next phase, which was the recreation of Europe, the Middle East, and various other corners of the world in the wake of the collapse of old empires. New states were created and ancient states re-emerged. In Poland, for example, the 11th of November is the National Day of Independence, marking the restoration of its sovereignty in 1918. And there was also the creation of the new system of world governance, with the League of Nations and its accompanying institutions at its core, the forerunners of the post-Second World War system with which we are still living today, now with the UN and its institutions at its core. With so much significance attached to the 11th of November, and possibly even more so in this period of crisis and confrontation, there's much to explore. And there can truly be no one better with whom to embark upon this exploration than Professor Margaret Macmillan, one of the most important historians of the First World War and its aftermath, and the definitive authority on the 1919 Paris Peace Conference that shaped the post-war world. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Margaret. And as ever, we'll start with you telling us a bit about your career, which I think began with teaching. Is that right? I started teaching and I was very lucky, actually. It wasn't a university in those days, it was a polytechnic. And so it very much focused on teaching and we weren't expected to write and publish. It wasn't part of our promotion. It didn't matter. And so I could write whatever I wanted, which gave me a sort of freedom, I think, that young academics don't always have because they have to publish in academic journals. They have to publish with academic presses, at least their first book. And so I tended to publish with trade presses. And I just wrote whatever I wanted because no one I was working with really paid any attention to it. And I became fascinated by international relations. I became fascinated. I always was by the history of war. And so I developed courses in those, again, which was a great way of learning about them. I was, I promise you, I was a bit ahead of my students, but but not that much. Um, but I learned a great deal. And I taught a course in international relations for years. I taught a course in war and society for years. And I began to write about those things. And your big breakthrough book in terms of international renown, um, because I think you were known amongst historians before, was The Peacemakers? The Peacemakers about the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. And, and because I was teaching so many different subjects, mostly modern history, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 kept coming up because so many things that later on became issues or challenges or problems in the world or, or positive things in the world were discussed at the Paris Peace Conference. So the League of Nations, the idea of an international organization to maintain the peace and, and work for common prosperity and, and so on, was at the League of Nations. But also issues about new nation states, um, the appearance of Czechoslovakia, the appearance of Yugoslavia, the fate of the Middle East, what happened to all those territories, and, of course, how the defeated nations, including Germany, were treated. Um, Japan was there. China was there. 
And every time I was teaching something, I think, well, how extraordinary. This was also discussed at the Paris Peace Conference. And I thought there must be a book which deals with the whole thing. And I found there were lots of monographs, but very few books that dealt with the Peace Conference as a whole. And I thought, well, someone should write a book about that because it's a really interesting subject. And then I thought, well, maybe I will. And so I worked, I suppose, for about 20 years on it, um, trying to get it published. And I got, I have a file somewhere of rejection letters saying, um, my favorite is nobody wants to read about a bunch of dead white men sitting around a table talking about peace treaties. And I said, I think there's a bit more to it than that. But I finally found a publisher and, and, you know, luck and timing matter a lot. And I think one of the reasons my book resonated was because it came after the end of the Cold War. And suddenly things that had been frozen during the Cold War, issues, the, the nationalities issues in Yugoslavia, for example, suddenly came to the surface again and proved to be very important. And what was happening in the Middle East proved to be very important. And so my book, I think, people read partly because they wanted to figure out how we got here. What, what were all these issues? Where did they come from? And so, as, as I say, timing matters. And so I think that's one of the reasons it, it sort of really struck a chord. We will discuss um, the peacemakers and others of your books um, a bit later on. But as we were talking before the recording, can we talk a bit about what an historian does and why an historian is not just a chronicler or anybody can be an historian? What is the historical profession? I think what the historical profession is, and it doesn't mean you have to be in a university, but it means you have to, I think, adhere to certain standards. And I think we know in history what is good and bad history, but we don't always articulate it enough. And what I think of as good history is history that respects the evidence, that keeps looking for evidence. And we're trying to find out about the past. We will never get a complete picture because the evidence is sometimes missing. And we are always asking different questions. And so we're always looking at different things. So we're trying to find as best a description of the past as we can. And, and of course, we keep bringing in new things. That, that's inevitable. Um, you know, when I went to university, we didn't do women's history. And women's history became a very important part of how we look at the past and, and how we understand the past and how we understand how change occurred in the past and how societies worked in the past. And I think we all know what, at least in history, we know what is the good and bad use of evidence. And in some ways, we're a bit like lawyers and judges. You know, and when people use evidence badly, when President Putin argues, for example, that Ukrainians and Russians are really one people, then I think we know and we can challenge it because the record is quite clear that Putin is wrong, that Ukrainians and Russians, yes, have a great deal in common, but there's also a lot that makes them different one from the other. And so I think there's that. I think we have to be prepared to disregard or give up really nice theories when the evidence doesn't work. And we've all done that. You know, we've all started out with the thought we're going to show that such and such happened because of such and such. And then we start looking into what people were saying and doing at the time and, and their attitudes and their values. And we think, you know, actually we're wrong. We're going to have to rethink it. And it's that willingness to keep an open mind, and um, both about the sort of things you're studying in the past and also the sorts of evidence you use. And we try and come up with as good an explanation as we can. And we know that it's going to be modified, but some explanations are clearly better than others. It's not like science. I mean, we're not a science, but scientists do this as well. Scientists work on theories, always knowing that one day the theory may be disproved and they may have to find another theory. And in that, at least, I think we're like scientists. Yes. I mean, I've never considered myself a scientist as somebody who is an historian, too, that um, I was taught, and I always keep this in mind, that we are there to explain change over time. Yeah. And we're there also to always um, look, first of all, to establish what happened, when and how, and only there the why. 
And I think that that is the two important things I always keep in mind. And it's one of the things that does make history different, for example, from a lot of the social sciences that seek the common, to seek the, not the change, to flatten out the change, and you could say in very many ways, whereas we are conditioned to always look for change. That's part of our point, I always think. I absolutely agree. And I think we also look and understand that historical events are, are unique. You know, there are parallels and similarities but the combination of forces and the sequence is different. And so I think we're skeptical, rightly, of grand rules. I mean, we can say that, yes, it's the case that empires usually come to an end. I mean, that's a fairly obvious one. But grand laws of of how history works, I think, um, I don't know how you feel, but they always make me slightly suspicious. You know, it just doesn't work for us. And, and, you know, perhaps we need, um, I've, I've had interesting discussions with political scientists who say, you don't have enough theory Um, And we say, well, you have too much. And there's a balance. Um, But, you know, I think we can learn from political theory. But again, I think we are constantly aware of historical events being unique. It's, it's, you know, nothing ever happens in the same order. And you never get quite the same people and the same sorts of ideas. But the other thing I think we do in history, apart from why did things happen as they did, I think we also try and and say, what was it like then? What made societies tick? You know, what were the values? But I think that's where social and cultural history has really added to our field. Vastly, because when it was just political history, the the underlying assumption was that people have always been the same, always. Mm. And that therefore, you know, sort of, you don't have to look at the motivators from that point of view, the human motivators. We're going down a rabbit hole, but I just thought it was really important to talk about what historians do and why historical profession is exceptionally important. Not least, as you've just pointed out, in light of um, Vladimir Putin's attempt at uh, writing and rewriting history in one way or another. But we're here on the 11th of November, or in a recording for the 11th of November. Let's go back and set the scene. The First World War starts in 1914, meant to be the war that ends old war, and you know, etc. We're coming towards 1918. Why did the war end, do you think, in 1918? It's like the origins of the First World War. We, we can't agree on why it began, and I'm not sure we, we agree much on why it ended. Well, I think we have more agreement on why it ended, much more. It ended, I think, because Germany and its allies could no longer fight on. And it did not end, yes, there were battles, but it did not end with a great victory on the battlefield. It ended through attrition, which is how an awful lot of wars end. Um, you know, I think there's, there's an overemphasis on the decisive battle um, in the history of war. And if you really look at how wars end, it's often because one side simply reaches the point where it can no longer or is no longer willing to fight on. And you could argue that the odds were stacked from Germany right from the beginning, but particularly once the Americans came into the war. Although the American presence was not yet as big as it was going to be in, in the summer of 1918, it was clearly going to get bigger. You know, the, the Germans knew that the clock was running out on them. The home front was crumbling. Their allies by the autumn were falling away. Um, The armies were beginning to get very restive. There was a mutiny in the Navy. And although the German high command later on claimed they could have fought on, in fact, they recognized it at the time. And they said to the civilian government, who they'd kept in the dark, they said, you've got to make an armistice right away. You've got to talk to to the American president and get him to make an armistice. So I think in the end, Germany had lost the capacity and the will and the ability to fight on. Also, it's soldiers, as you alluded to. So as a student at the Western Front, it was very clear they had a very successful counterattack in March 1918. 
Um, but then a lot of the soldiers, they couldn't resupply them. A lot of the soldiers just, you know, sort of peeled away or got drunk on the cellars that they found that still had some food or wine in them. It was a problem just, you know, sort of keeping the army in the field. Yeah. Well, it's the same problem I think Russia is facing today in Ukraine. Um, you know, if you can't supply your soldiers, um, if, they don't, if they don't have boots, much less guns, um, you know, how can you expect them to fight on? And I think those big attacks that Ludendorff planned in, the, in, in March and, and those waves of attack of 1918 really exhausted the capacity of the German army to do any more attacks. And you get, and, and you would know better than me because you, you've studied it more, but you get these desperate field commanders saying, we don't have petrol, we don't have trucks, we don't have food, we don't have ammunition, we can't fight. Yeah. And as you say, um, at least in November 2021, we're seeing slightly similar things um, in, in Ukraine, though possibly not enough to, to end a war at this point. Set the scene for us. The war ends in November 1918, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And by the beginning of 1919, we're moving to Paris to the peace conference. How does that happen? Why is it Paris? Who is setting it up? what is going to be discussed? The, the war ended sooner than the Allies thought it would. Um, they were making plans to fight on into 1919. And I think they hadn't expected as much as, as, as the German government hadn't expected um, Germany to be at the edge of its capacities. And so the war ends quickly. And they then have to scramble to figure out what they're going to do next. And the ways in which wars had ended before was you had a big peace conference. Um, and the model they had was the Congress of Vienna at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. It was a long way back, but it was the only one they had. And they wanted initially, I think, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and Woodrow Wilson, the American president, wanted to have the peace conference somewhere neutral like Switzerland. I mean, they were thinking, I think, of Geneva. And Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, said, and he, of course, he had, an, he had a point, France has taken the highest losses of us all. France took the highest proportion of losses of, of men of military age, I think with the exception of Serbia. Um, which took took even more out of all the, the the powers fighting, and so Clemenceau said we have paid a price of blood. It has to be in Paris. Um, Lloyd George later said the old man wept and cried and made such a fuss we couldn't deny him. Um, <laughs> whether that was true, that or just Lloyd George, but I do think um, you know Clemenceau carried the day, and so the peace conference met in Paris. And what happened then, of course, because they hadn't done that much thinking about what happens when we win. I mean, foreign officers had done a bit. Unlike the Second World War, where the Grand Alliance really did spend a lot of time talking and thinking about what happened after the war ended, they hadn't done that. And so there's a lot of scrambling around. And of course, what people did is pull out shopping lists. You know, if the Ottoman Empire is going to be wound up, which it looked very much like it was by, by November 1919, uh, 1918, well, then we better see who gets it. Um, you know, we don't want it all becoming independent. So you, you begin to get... Um, as always happens with alliances, once the war ends, each country beginning to think of its own national interests. What also happened, um, because of the nature of the war, there was a very widespread public feeling, I think, in all the allied countries, and indeed in, in many of the defeated countries, that this has been so horrendous, it has caused such damage to European civilization, but not just to European civilization, to the world, because there had been fighting in the Middle East, there'd been fighting in Africa, there'd been fighting in, in the Far East. It has been so catastrophic for Europe and for the world, that something better has got to come out of it. And so what you have is a huge sort of public expectation that the peace conference is not going to just draw borders and not going to just deal with the defeated. It's actually going to produce something better. 
And so you have this great series of expectations, national interests, plus you have, although the fighting ends between the major powers on November the 11th, it doesn't end everywhere. And as Winston Churchill said, the wars of the giants have ended, but the wars of the pygmies continued. And he was right. I mean, there was fighting again in parts of Europe. There was fighting in the Middle East. There was fighting in the Caucasus. So that what they're dealing with when they meet in Paris is settling the war, dealing with all these national interests, dealing with public expectations, trying to build a better world, plus just managing what they are afraid is an increasingly catastrophic and anarchic situation in, in, in Europe. We should point out that for those um, who are not aware of it, when Europe went to war in 1914, there were several empires at stake. Um, there was the Ottoman Empire that covered large parts of not just what is now modern Turkey, but also Greece, parts of um, Eastern Europe and parts of the Middle East and North Africa. There was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which occupied the center of Europe and what we know of today as large parts of the Western Balkans. Um, there was the Russian Empire. And there was the British Empire, the French Empire. Um, I think that was more or less empiring out. Um, can you think of another one I've missed? Did you mention Germany? Because it ruled over a lot of Poles, um, you could argue, and, and also French speakers. You could argue it was an empire. I mean, it's, it's, it's a movement. It had African colonies. Yes, it had African colonies and, and some in the South Pacific. Yeah, sorry, I missed the German Empire. We should have mentioned the German Empire. So going into the peace conference, it was really quite interesting from that point of view to see going in ex-empires coming out how many empires from that point of view. Just as anecdotally, because so many people don't know these things, then in Brussels, for example, even though the armistice um, was signed on the 11th of November, it was only possible for the king to re-enter on the 19th of November, if I'm not mistaken, because actually the Germans started fighting each other. The occupying German forces uh, were divided between those who supported the Kaiser, who had abdicated, and those who supported the new regime. And so bad was the fighting that they had to impose a curfew. The mayors imposed a curfew upon everybody here. And it took until the 19th of November to get rid of the Germans out of Brussels. And it's only then that the royal family returns to Brussels. I didn't know that. That's absolutely fascinating. No, that really is. It is fascinating. Well, I think that there was, I mean, there was a lot of uncontrolled violence or, or sort of undirected violence um, because there were deep political divisions. And uh, oh, that is very interesting indeed. I didn't know that. And I'm sure, you know, across the continent, there must be tons and tons of um, examples like that. Coming back also to what you were talking about, one of the things that is only lately, I think, historians are talking is that not only were there empires, but a lot of the fighting nations brought their colonial soldiers to fight. And nobody knew about that for many um, years. Historians didn't talk about that. Can we, can we look at that a bit? There was about a million British uh, um, Indian soldiers, I think, that fought. Similar numbers on the French side. There were huge movements, and, and it hasn't been properly appreciated, of, of young men around the world. Peoples brought from Africa, from, from the French colonies in North Africa, um, also from the British colonies, peoples from India. Yet, oh, I think more than a million, actually. I think, I think it was a huge number. Um, and they were brought to places like the Western Front, but also to the Middle East. And what you also had was, was, was Chinese laborers brought from China to work on the trenches and, and work on resupplying. I mean, I, I forget how many, but I think oh, well over 100,000. And, and you still there are still graves in the north of France um, with Chinese characters on them of the Chinese laborers who died there. And then, of course, you had peoples from Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, my own country, and then the Americans entered. And so there was this massive movement 
of young men around the world, which also, of course, helped to spread the influenza pandemic, um, which, which was breaking out at the end of the war and, and which succeeded the war. But no, this was, this was a war of empires. And of course, what it also did is convince a lot of those in the empires that the Europeans didn't know best. You know, I mean, I think empire always worked because there was a certain um, acceptance, that maybe not willing and maybe not happy, but there was an acceptance among those ruled over that those ruling them were doing an okay job. Um, but what the First World War did is really, I think, in, in a number of countries, speed up the national and enhance and strengthen the nationalist movements. And the experience of many of those soldiers who'd fought in France, when they saw often the incompetence of the Europeans and, and the mess that the Europeans were making of it, was to go back to their own countries and say, we want independence. And a number of those who went to lead independence movements in places like Algeria were former soldiers. Absolutely. And also it was the first, um, if I am uh, um, not correct, and you'd be the person to correct me, but um, at least what we knew as colonies or dominions of the British Empire, for example, all demanded to be represented independently at the Paris Peace Conference. They did not want to go as part of the British delegation. No, there was a big row about it. Well, it was it was a very important part, what, what they called the old dominions, which were largely settled by British people. Um, and so it was felt that they were ready for self-government. This is the way people thought in those days. But Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, which was a very new part of the British Empire as well, and Newfoundland, which at that point was a separate colony, all really became more assertive during the First World War. And particularly, I think, Canada and Australia, um, who were very conscious of what they were contributing to the war effort. And so even during the war, they were demanding a say in the direction of the war. And when the peace came and they were told that the British were going to represent them, there was an explosion. And the Australian prime minister, who was actually in, in, in Paris at the time, said, I'm going home. The Canadian prime minister said, I'm not staying for this. And so the British, to their amazement, um, and, and often I think Chagrin had to deal with these uppity members of, as they saw it, some of them were these uppity members of, of, of their empire. But it was a British empire delegation that went to Paris um, to the peace conference, not a British delegation. And the, in the end, when the treaties were drawn up, um, and India was also part of it. India was less advanced towards self-government, but promises had been made. And so when the peace treaties were signed, the members of the British Empire signed separately, the ones who'd been represented in Paris. So everybody assembles in Paris in yeah. January 1919? Yeah. Um, any women other than secretaries? Very few, um, because there weren't women in foreign services in those days. There were some, like Gertrude Bell, who had worked for British intelligence in the Middle East during the, second, the First World War, who was there and did give advice, but not she, she didn't have, as far as I remember, an, an official membership. And then there were pieces like people like Queen Marie of Romania, who came to demand a large chunk of what had been Hungary for Romania. So there were women there, but it mostly, um, as I say, either there because they, they had a certain amount of influence, but most of them there were, were most of them there were in a support role. And the conference is about to start, and it's based largely on the principles put forward by U.S. President Wilson. What were the core of those principles? Wilson was an idealist. Um, he also believed strongly, as many Americans did, that the United States was a force for good in the world and should be a model for the rest of the world, that American democracy, American ways of doing things, um, free trade, uh, which 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 America, many Americans felt was was a good thing, partly because they were in a very favorable position to benefit from free trade, 
just as the British had supported free trade in the 19th century. I mean, if you're producing lots of goods cheaply, then you, you, you want to be able to sell them to everyone. So the Americans came with this idealistic view that they, they wanted to help build a better world. When the United States had come into the war in 1917, President Wilson had said very clearly, we're coming in not for ourselves. We're coming in not to get anything for ourselves. We're coming in to build a better world. And the United States very pointedly called itself an associated power. It wasn't an ally ever. It was an associated power. And the principles that Wilson enunciated were various. Um, res restoration of, of, of countries that had been occupied, such as Belgium, um, an independent Poland, um, but key to what, at free trade he talked about, but key to what he wanted was a League of Nations, because he felt that if you could build a League of Nations that would offer each other collective security, which would work together against an aggressor, which would do such things as promoting free trade, disarmament, um, take on social responsibilities, try and abolish slavery. I mean, he didn't enunciate all of these, but the League of Nations was going to be a progressive force for good in the world. And crucially, it was going to make war impossible or, or do its best to make war impossible. And there's a myth, I think, which has grown up, which was promoted by a number of Wilson's supporters, that the Europeans didn't accept any of this that the Europeans were sunk in their old black-hearted ways. It was all about power politics. They, they weren't interested in a better world. And that's not true. Um, you know, Lloyd George was a liberal internationalist. Clemenceau was a liberal. Um, Clemenceau just knew, I think, um, that he had to protect France. And he, as he said famously once, I like the League of Nations, but I don't trust it or I don't believe in it. And I do think that's important. But I think, and there was a lot of public support. I mean, one of the strongest areas of public support for the League was in Britain, where League of Nations Society grew up, association grew up, you know, had a huge membership. And so I think for a lot of Europeans, this also looked like a better way. And, and some of the ideas that Wilson drew on, in fact, were European ideas that had been discussed before the First World War. And so you had this complicated agenda at the Paris Peace Conference, this highly idealistic vision of a better world, which we still have. I mean, the United Nations embodies it as well, and we, we still hope that such an international order can be built. And this very practical thing of settling the borders, as you pointed out, empires are disappearing. So someone has to draw the borders. How are they going to be drawn? How is Europe going to be managed? How are the colonies going to be dealt with? Um, how are you going to get the economy going again? All these things have been dealt with at the same time, plus national interests. How do we get what we want? Let's leave the League of Nations because we're going to come back to that in a minute because it's the core of where we are today, you could say. But nonetheless, um, all those other things that you mentioned are hugely, hugely important. First of all, the war had been fought on European soil and on Middle Eastern soil. Um, and I think that that in itself was very different for the Americans. It hadn't been fought on their soil, so they were coming much more idealistically and much more pragmatically, you could say, from that point of view. And it was probably very good that there was an associated power that um, wasn't just sitting there saying, I fought for this long, I had so many people killed, I want this and this and this and this and this in return. Um, but nonetheless, um, there was this need to, first of all, settle the, the, the huge damage done to Europe on the one hand, and on the other, also to draw these new borders. What were the principles for the new borders? Woodrow Wilson had talked about people's right to choose their own governments, which later on came to be encapsulated in the phrase national self-determination. And I think as he came to realize, and others came to realize, it, it's, it's a difficult concept. Um, does it mean that every group that defines itself as a nation, um, distinguished by ethnicity, culture, religion, perhaps language, perhaps, Somewhere in there too is often a racial mix. Um, you know, the, the, it was very customary in this period to talk about the different races 
and to use races as a sort of shorthand for different nations. So it was a, it was a difficult concept. And did it mean that you could go on subdividing countries into smaller and smaller parcels um, because different ethnic groups appeared? I mean, what happened at the end of the First World War is all sorts of groups began appearing um, who said, well, we're actually a nation and we'd like our own, um, our own territory. And sometimes they had a good argument because they could point to history and they could point. And sometimes they were nations in the process of being constituted. Um, so the idea was that you try and draw back borders that would bring in all the people of, of, of similar ethnicities or, or nationalities. The trouble was it was almost impossible to do because history hadn't left neat parcels on the map of Europe. And if you looked at a, a population map of the center of Europe, it, it looks like a, a pointillist painting because you would have Germans, Czechs, Hungarians, sort of all mixed up together. And so the idea that you could draw a border around all the Poles in Europe, and that would be Poland, just wasn't going to work. And what happened actually was that when the new borders emerged, and, and they were often drawn on the ground, and there's a, an idea that they were all drawn by statesmen in Paris. In fact, the statesmen in Paris often had very little control about what was happening. Czechoslovakia created itself, Yugoslavia created itself, Poland created, recreated itself by fighting um, and pushed its borders out. But when you looked at what, what these borders actually meant, there were huge national minorities in all the different countries. It's been estimated that something like a third of the people living in the center of Europe between the two world wars were ethnic minorities in the countries in which they were living. And so it was a the whole principle of national self-determination, which sounds wonderful, in practice turned out to be very difficult indeed. So it was just basically people um, creating themselves and creating borders and creating nations at the same time as there were principles being discussed about it. If you want, it was a two-way or a, a dual process. It was a dual process. I mean, the fact that Woodrow Wilson, the American president, had spoken about it and the fact that it had become part of the international vocabulary, of course, was heard by people around the world. I mean, it was heard in the Middle East. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've found a story somewhere of, of the head of a Bedouin tribe who had um, the, some of the, the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson inscribed and wore it as an amulet on his arm. It, it had tremendous resonance and in places like Egypt and China um, and Korea. So the fact that the leader of one of the greatest countries in the world was saying this, I think, mattered. But what was also happening was, was a sense, very much like the end of the Cold War in 1989, suddenly everything we'd taken for granted about the um, st stability of Europe, the, the balance of Europe, the power of Europe, the borders in Europe, suddenly seemed to be up in the air. And I think a lot of people felt that if they didn't move now, they wouldn't have a chance in a couple of years. As, as Helmut Kohl moved very quickly to reunite the two Germanys because he felt he only had a very brief window. That's very much what was happening in 1919. You know, Let's grab what we can, let's announce ourselves to be a country while we still can, while everything is in this state of flux. And so, yes, you have the ideals being expressed by Woodrow Wilson and others in Paris. But what you also have is peoples on the ground saying, we've got to get this now because we don't know what's going to happen in two years. And so you get um, a lot of the cases, the people in Paris simply recognize what has happened on the ground. In some cases, when the league is set up, it holds plebiscites to deal with particularly tricky mixed regions. Um, there were plebiscites on the on the common border, um, but say, for example, between Germany and Poland, because the populations were so mixed. But for the most part, these countries that emerged out of the wreckage of the First World War um, were emerging on the ground. There is one country that used to be an empire that, of course, wasn't at the peace conference because it wasn't invited, and that was the new Soviet Russia. It, there's a lot of debate about it. 
should the Russians have been invited, the Allies felt quite bitter about Russia because they'd all agreed that they wouldn't make a separate peace and then Russia dropped out of the war. I mean, I, I think it was collapsing anyway and it had no choice, but it dropped out of the war and, and Lenin signed a punitive peace, a punitive to Russia with Germany at Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. And I think the Allies felt, well, Russia is no longer an ally. Furthermore, it isn't clear that the Bolsheviks would have wanted to come to Paris. Um, Lenin confidently believed, the leader of the Bolsheviks, that the revolution in Russia was going to trigger uh, a revolution around Europe, that European working classes would rise up and overthrow capitalism and, and that you'd have a very different world. And so as far as the Bolsheviks were concerned, those statesmen sitting in Paris were representatives of the old order, which was probably going to disappear anyway. So why would they want to talk to them? In addition, of course, they were fighting or about to fight a civil war. So they didn't. I mean, it would have been difficult for them to come anyway. Uh, but I don't think there was that much interest. And I think on the part of a lot of the European right, there wasn't any willingness to have the Bolsheviks come to Paris. Um, Clemenceau, the French prime minister, said, you know, if we invite the Bolsheviks, my middle classes will revolt. And so I think on both sides, there wasn't much willingness. Indeed. But that did mean that when a lot of these decisions were made, then if you want the major um, or a major force in the east of Europe was not sitting at the table, which may explain why um, a lot of things did or didn't happen afterwards, but also why they were at the table in 1945. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Take me back to um, the conference. Uh, we've talked about how the borders were made. Um, let's talk about the League of Nations. What was the idea behind the League of Nations? It was to be um, actually very much like the United Nations its successor was. It was to be a, a League of Nations who pledged um, that they would work together. Um, you know, it was a covenant. Wilson came from a religious family, and he, he used this deliberately religious word. I think they would they would sign the covenant. Um, they would agree that you know that, that they would provide collective security to each other. If one of their members was attacked, they would take measures up to and including war to, to deal with that aggression. Um, they would work together to try and bring about disarmament. And it had, um, it had a council um, with, with permanent members, but also elected members. It had, um, it had various organizations, many of which went over into the United Nations, um, the forerunner of the World Health Organization, the for, forerunner of, of a number of what forerunners of, of, of a number of other nations, and the International Labour Organization was affiliated to the League of Nations and it went over and it, it carried on into the United Nations. And so it was to be not a world government, I suppose, although people did talk about it like that, but a, a world organization to make the world a safer and better place. So it was the founding organization, we could agree, um, for what became the United Nations after the Second World War. It was. I mean, there was actually talk of trying to revive the League of Nations um, during the Second World War, and then it was decided that it was too much associated with failure in the outbreak of the Second World War, that they better off, they'd be better off starting with a new one, um, which is what they did. But they carried on a lot of the personnel as well as a lot of the organization into the new United Nations. And why did it fail, do you think? It failed, I think, partly because the United States didn't join. Although we have to remember the United States was not yet a superpower. You know, we, we mustn't read history back into the United States at the time, but it was clearly a major power. And Woodrow Wilson was unable to get Congress to approve it, partly because he wouldn't accept any changes. And so it was defeated, the treaty included incorporating it was defeated in Congress by a mixture of Republicans who opposed it and by Woodrow Wilson's own Democrats who voted against it because he told them to. So I've often wondered, you know, if he hadn't been so stubborn, 
And if he'd accepted modifications to the charter, to the covenant of the League of Nations, whether it would have gone through. But as, as it happened, the United States didn't join it. Um, Britain and France, who were its two key members, um, were, I think, were prepared to support it to a point, but, but weren't strong enough or willing enough um, to make it a really effective organization. It did eventually include Germany, and it did eventually, I think, include Russia. And I think it just wasn't, it, it, it founded on national interests, as, as these things so often do. It had a great deal of public support, and it had some successes. I think what really made the work of the League and, and in fact, made the international order so unstable was the Great Depression. And that was not its fault. But what it did was turn countries inwards to protect themselves. It encouraged a polarization of politics. Um, you, you saw a, a move to extremist parties on both the right and the left. And I think it encouraged a growth of, of aggressive nationalism. Margaret, we could carry on talking for a very long time, but our time is, is moving ahead. But I do want to zoom right forward to now. Um, we're entering a great recession, according to everyone. Nationalism is on the rise. Um, at least one of the permanent members of the Security Council is actively killing civilians mm. uh, in a war of aggression. Another one is repressing civilians um, quite actively. Will this system survive? It's a big question, and I think none of us know. Um, and as historians, we know that when you're living through the middle of something, it's very, very difficult to get a, a grasp on what it may mean. But most people I talk to, historians I respect and, and international specialists I respect, are gloomy about the present situation um, because norms are important. Rules can be important and structures can be important, but norms are important too. And I think Putin's Russia has broken some very important norms. And once broken, others will be tempted, I think, to do the same. And so we've had a sort of understanding, not formalized very well, but a sort of understanding since 1945 that you don't seize land by force from other countries. And if you do, um, you'll be kicked out. Saddam Hussein tried to seize Kuwait and, and he was kicked out. And Putin has now seized land without any justification, without any, any legal basis, um, in fact, in violation of, of international law and uh, pledges and treaties that he himself has signed. And I think others, others will be tempted. And I think we've seen the appalling treatment of civilians. I mean, this is something that's happened around the world and we should have been paying more attention to it. Um, but this is something as well that, that you know, the 21st century is, is going to have to deal with. Um, there seem to be no limits in the war that Putin's troops are waging in Ukraine on what they will do to civilians. And we've seen that in other wars since 1945, um, but perhaps because they've been further away, I say we, because I live in, in the West, perhaps because they've been further away, we haven't fully realized what it's meant and we should have done. Um, so I think we're, we're, we're moving into a very dangerous age. I think we also have growing tensions between the United States and China. Um, you know, the, the, the policies being for the, the coronation of Xi Jinping, the policies being put forward to him. And he's now taken um, his whole Politburo, I think it is, to Yunnan, um, where Mao first established his absolute control over the Chinese Communist Party in the, in the 1940s during the Second World War. And, and this seems to me very important as a symbol that we are going to have one man's thought, um, Xi Jinping's thought, which has now been elevated to be sort of equal with Mao's thought dominating the fate of China. And this is a China which increasingly is, is, is expressing very nationalist messages um, and is increasingly expressing hostility towards the West. I mean, the appearance of the wolf warriors in the Chinese foreign ministry 
who talk about, you know, the, the unfairness of the West, the decadence of the West, who, who are very, very aggressive in their language. These are not good signs. So a hundred years after um, the Paris Peace Conference, after we ended one great war, we've entered into another period of unpeace. Is that a fair way to understand it? I think so. And, you know, we, we perhaps shouldn't be too nostalgic about the Cold War, um, which we're now tending to see as a period of peace, which is which is wrong. I see you shaking your head and you're absolutely right. I mean, you think of how many wars were fought. All, I mean, what happened during the Cold War is we avoided a war somehow, I think more through luck often than anything else between the two superpowers, which meant we didn't get a full-out nuclear war. But we've now got a much more unstable world. Um, we continue to have wars and we have a proliferation of nuclear weapons. You know, we have Kim Jong-un um, stamping his feet in rage in North Korea and firing rockets around because no one's paying much attention to him. But he possesses nuclear weapons. And, you know, this ludicrous figure who normally we wouldn't pay much attention to is, is a real menace um, to his neighbors and, and to the stability of the world. And we have, of course, in Putin's Russia, someone who is talking about using nuclear weapons. And, and again, you know, these, these are norms. We never did, the world collectively never did use nuclear weapons after the first use on Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, during the Cold War. And now, and, and we came close to it at times, but now we have people talking quite openly about using them. And that is, is very, very dangerous, I think. It is very dangerous indeed. Margaret, thank you very, very much. Um, we're going to have to do this again. I think it was a real pleasure to talk to you. And, and I'm, we could have covered a lot more. I think we could have gone on for a bit. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guest, Margaret Macmillan, for a wonderful conversation. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. And leave us a five star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, contribute to the conversation with your comments. We love them. We're on all media as Wise Brussels, so reach out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. That's W-I-I-S-Brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with my friend and producer Florence Ferrando, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. 